Welcome to our LinkedIn Live conversation. I am Rick Franzi and thank you for joining us today here on the show. My purpose and the purpose of my coaching practice is to help leaders to live impactful lives. I'm excited because my guest today is author DDA Kosin and I've invited DDA to join us today to talk about his newest book, his fifth book called High Performance Boards, Improving and Energizing Your Governance. Welcome to this LinkedIn Live conversation, DDA. Pleasure to be with you, Rick. So let's jump right into the content of the book. Um, can you tell me what's the main idea of the book? So the book is really about governance. You know, I've been uh, working on, uh, on governance and helping boards uh, get more effective very much around the world for the last 20 years. And I've been working you know, in the US, uh, in Canada, in Europe, in Asia, in Singapore, in the Middle East, in Africa. So really uh, an experience from around the world with large corporations publicly traded, with mid-sized corporations, with family-owned corporations, and also with some uh, non-profit organizations. And each time I found that governance is an incredible driver of performance. And governance is truly the art of decision-making at the top of organization. And, and it's truly embodied in the board of directors that you know, select the CEO, approve the strategy, organize uh, the company towards its success. And uh, that body is really key to the success of organizations. So, so you you have an extensive knowledge in this area. What else do you do, sir, other than being the author of five books? Well, I, I work with these boards actually very much. Uh, you know, one on one with the board, helping them uh, be better. Sometimes with a chairman or a chairwoman that uh, wants to have his or her board be more effective. Sometimes with a board member or. Or an owner. I, I, I currently work, actually, my last project was with uh, a, a family uh, owner of mm. a large corporation, several billion dollars, and trying to figure out how they can improve the governance across their multiple assets. So you write, and I guess, I guess I'd ask you, what are the three ifs, three ifs every board member should consider in today's COVID-19 volatile, unprecedented times? Well, by ifs, I'm not sure what you mean. Do you mean, uh, you know, the, the, what they should be doing for sure? Or are you talking about the risks and the uncertainties that they may be facing? I, I think the, the, the governance that they're giving in these uncertain times, unprecedented times, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because clearly we are, we are having massive challenges in, in several dimensions, right? One is consideration for stakeholders. Mm -hmm. uh, and overall, the world has changed uh, from a very shareholder uh, maximization uh, view towards a multiple stakeholder perspective where somehow, you know, we have to take into account uh, employees, uh, customers, etc. But I think many businesses were doing that already because if you want to do good long-term shareholder value, uh, maximization, you need to take into account your role in society, right? It's obvious. And somehow, you know, businesses have been doing that, but they're doing it more proactively. For example, some of them now are, are building materiality maps. I don't know whether you've heard about that, but materiality maps look 
where you're impacting the uh, society, mm. the environment the most, where you are have the most positive impact and how you build on that positive impact and how you extract value business-wise also from that uh, positive impact. And so that's one dimension, the stakeholder side. The other dimension that I think is, uh, is very prominent these days is, uh, at least with the companies I work with, is uh, the incredible tech disruptions that we are living through, right? And how we have to navigate both from the risks and for, from the opportunities. And the third one, uh, which is massive in, in my world, is geopolitics. And, uh, you know, the, the trade uh, wars, the IP wars, we even see it all the way to the vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so that's uh, part also of the game we have to play. But uh, I would say a board that's really well-built, that has the right composition, that has the right processes, that has the right information, and the right culture that is dynamic, agile, motivated, committed, uh, typically can handle these challenges. Uh, so the material challenges of these types, right, are, are, are the food that you need actually for great boards. And great boards can be built quite effectively. I, I explain the processes to do that in uh, the book, High Performance Boards. Do you have a copy of the book that you could show? I, I do actually, right here. Uh, I do. I'm published so at Wiley, available on Amazon.com or I'm a local uh, uh, bookshops. I, are the bookshops open right now in your area? Uh, it depends on the location in the country. Some are, and some are being closed given the, yeah. you know, the nature of the of the yeah, of COVID course. disease. I, I, can you talk a little bit about your research and the work that you do working with boards, tying good governance to financial performance of the? Uh, we talked about stakeholders. Let's talk about shareholders specifically. Sure, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of research in that area. You're right, Rick. And uh, actually, we've uh, figured out, for example, that since the beginning of the year, so throughout the crisis, uh, you take a fifth of the companies of the S&P 500, you take the better governed ones, and you add 19% of stock price performance. Uh, so with a fifth, so with 100 companies out of the S&P 500. So huge performance of governance. And if you take it over 10 years, you add 6% a year of performance on top of the market without any extra risk, actually, by taking the risk down overall. So performance of governance is there, and the large investors are paying a lot of attention to that. That's why, actually, I work with some of the large institutional investors on governance as well, the large sovereign wealth fund, some wealthy families, because they are investing in governance for the right reasons. Is this topic of corporate governance, is, is it changing the nature of the conversation in the years that you've worked with companies that have boards? Have, have they, is there a different appreciation for the value of the board? Is, can you just talk about the relationship between the board and its governance responsibility and the actual operations run by the CEO, the COO, the CFO? So hugely so. First now, uh, boards are making front page of the papers. They didn't choose to do that. Huh? And, and sometimes on the negative side, right? Look right. at uh, Boeing or at uh, Volkswagen, right? Where the boards made the front pages for the wrong reasons, right? So <laughs> you've had, you had the negative side too. Huh? But on the positive side, 
boards have become a more powerful driver of performance. First, you know, tenure of CEOs have reduced, right? So the CEOs are turning over much faster than before. And uh, what we see also is that the complexity of the world, the social evolution, technological evolution, geopolitical evolution, all the disruptions we are living through make decisions more complex. And these decisions somehow, you know, you need that uh, constructive dissent, that challenge that comes from a good board to executive team relationship, where the board brings, you know, difference of views, right? Differences of perspectives because they come from other industries, maybe they have a little more maturities, they have been through a few more crises, and so they can bring actually a constructive dialogue with the executive team. And thus uh, the role of the board has become more important. The investors are looking at it much more actively, and the proxy advisors, the ISS uh, or Glass-Lewis, etc., they are paying much more attention to that. The large investors, uh, you know, the Black Rocks of the world, right, have uh, heavy uh, governance investments, you know, in looking at the governance. Even passive funds now are doing that. And, uh, and clearly the active uh, holders of uh, institutional investors uh, have been doing that for quite a while now. And they are kicking in hard these days through what we call ESG, yeah, environmental, social, and governance. Uh, but in my view, ESG is very driven by quality governance. So constructing the proper board to get that sort of positive tension between the operating executives and the governance and the, the leadership of the board, it sounds like it's a, it's a critical uh, aspect of, of, of building the culture of a board that delivers a lot of value for the the leadership and also then the stakeholders. Um, when you advise companies, when they're maybe they have an open position for a new director or they're looking to reconstitute the board, what advice are you offering the CEO about how to properly construct his or her board for governance and then performance? Well, first, you know, you, you have to pay attention to whether the CEO is a chair or whether he or she is not the chair. Uh, okay. Because really, the the board construction, if you want, is really linked to uh, the chair. So if you start with a smaller company, usually the CEO is a chair as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then indeed is a key driver. And if I start, so if I start with a company that has less than uh, 500 employees, huh, which, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, less than uh, 100 uh, million of uh, sales, let's say, right? I will want a, a rather small board, huh? uh, probably five people or something like that, right? And immediately, I already want to think about my four pillars of success. The first pillar is the people themselves that you're going to have on the board. And for that, you need a skill map. You need to have the, the right skills on the board. You need someone who's deep in strategy. You need someone who has, you know, a strong finance or strong tech qualities. Uh, do you need uh, the, the type of diversity you want? Gender diversity always brings a lot of value, but you have other types of diversity, right? ethnic diversity, and uh, uh, diversity of perspectives, personality diversity. Do you want introverts and extroverts? Do you want conservative people and open to experience people, right? So the, the type, uh, the whole construction, if you want, of uh, uh, 
the, the skills and attributes of the board members. And you want people dedicated and well-focused. That's my first pillar. My second pillar is going to be information and uh, uh, making sure that board has both internal information and external information. And, and that they bring information themselves, that they don't rely on the, on the management of the company to have information. Then my third one, uh, my third pillar is going to be the processes, the structures of processes of the board. In a, in a smaller size company, you will need, uh, you know, classical processes, you need a nomination process, you need a bit of an audit process, you need a strategy process, you need uh, a, a risk process, right? And uh, you probably need uh, some form of performance review process as well, potentially even a board evaluation process. So you have a long list of processes that you need to take into account. And my last pillar, the number four, is going to be really building the culture. And there what you want is, uh, is constructive dissent, right? So you want open discussion, psychological safety on the board where people can express themselves, where, you know, there is no... Uh, fish rotting under the table, there is no elephant hidden in the room, right? And where people can discuss openly of all the issues at stake for the business. That last one sounds to me to be maybe one of the more challenging parts of building a high-performance board is getting that level of comfort and culture that they can have those connections but yet have those types of conversations. H have you found that to be true, that that is a, a challenging aspect of creating a high-performance board, DDA? For sure. Uh, for sure. All the dynamics, and, and we see many traps. Uh, we see a happy family type of trap where everybody you know, is happy with each other and doesn't discuss things very much, right? right. You, see, you see fragmented board, right, where... You have like cliques, you have, you know, groups that create, you know, that get created by sometimes some family members or, uh, you know, people of the same view, same style, etc. And they're grouping and they're always together. So it makes a board that's fragmented and the discussions are not circulating well. You have, uh, so you have many traps, right, that you have to be careful about. And I have to tell you, huh, uh, a great chair makes a huge difference here. A great chair is really the driver of the board uh, culture. Uh, and the, the, the lady or the man that knows how to ensure equal participation, that knows how to bring everybody uh, and energizes the board. At the same time, she or he disciplines the board into being on track on the real topics, right? Uh, a great chair is, is a, an absolute driver of a great board culture. That's interesting to me because I, I, um, my vision is you have a group of highly successful people who get together for a common cause, which is to help the leadership, the executive leadership of a company. Uh, but they're all maybe many times strong-willed with a belief system based on their past success. So that the job of the chair uh, is really, a, I'm glad you highlighted that one because I can see that being a chair of, uh, for privately held companies here in Southern California, the challenge of getting people all on the same page, looking in the same direction, especially strategically, has got to be something that you spend a, a good deal of time with, I'm sure, in your role as a consultant to these boards. Of course. And remember, many 
a board member is a former CEO or a current CEO, right? <laughs> They're used to being an alpha woman or an alpha man, right? And, uh, and they are not used to be in a group of peers, right? And a board is a group of peers. Uh, even the chair is not the boss of the board. Right? It's just a voice of the board. It's almost a facilitator. It's a bit more than a facilitator, but it's certainly not the boss, right? Everybody is a peer in the board. And so it's uh, a bit hard for people to make the transition sometimes. But it's that outside experience that those uh, board members bring to the company that can really be insightful, I would think, in the conversations that a high performance board needs to have about the strategy, even more so now when uh, so many of the things that seem to be a little bit more settled in business have been turned upside down based on the global pandemic. Is, is, is that your perspective and your experience? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and, you know, having experience of having gone through a crisis before, and that's what people, you know, of long experience have, right? Because there has been other crises in the world. I mean, this one is exceptional, but, you know, in some ways every crisis is exceptional. Uh, having been through uh, another massive crisis is still the best preparation to a crisis. And so experience matters. There is no question about that. Experience matters, but we also have to speak for age diversity uh, because the, we live in a new world. Uh, there is huge natural selection. Older companies underperform. And the younger generation is perceiving you know, transformations that uh, many of us uh, are not. And so we have to be careful, right? You have to combine experience with some diversity as well. And thus, you know, that's the whole balancing act of creating a great board, which is never ideal, but you're keeping working on all the time. So DDA, and we're talking with DDA Kostin, and he wrote the book uh, about high, this is his fifth book. And you, can you hold it up again for our audience to see DDA? <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Uh, it's, it's really about building high performance boards to give you the performance of the company that you need, the results that the company needs in these challenging times. I wonder, do you advise the CEOs that you work with who have a board that they should be on a board? Like, is it valuable in your experience that a CEO who works with their board, is also a board member for a different company. Does that bring anything to their ability to work successfully with a board, their own board? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's true. You want to be careful about the situation, right? The situation of the company and how long the CEO has been there for. And there are some limitations because it takes time eh, to be on a board. It takes, you know, uh, a, a big board, right? It's going to take... Uh, almost a day, a week of your time. Mm. Uh, and so uh, you have to be careful. You have to uh, find the right balance. But I advise uh, the CEO of a sizable company uh, in, uh, in Connecticut, where indeed we had that discussion very recently and where he's moving onto a board to uh, have a better sense himself of uh, what it is to be on the other side of uh, the seat. Yeah. Yeah, See, that seems to be very logical to me that they would be able to appreciate better what an outside director's role is if they're an outside director for a different right. company, right? If they, right? But you're right. Their first job is to drive the performance of the company that they're the CEO for. 
That's exactly right. Uh, if there is a plan, you know, if, they, if you're in the middle of a restructuring, right, it's not the question of understanding what the board, how the board thinks. It's a question of doing what the board asks for. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's important as well. But then, you know, there is a level of maturity, etc., where you can exchange more constructively. And maybe sometimes you can push back and uh, understand a bit more uh, what's driving the board, which I think makes sense as well. Uh, I see that we have a question and it came up on the screen from uh, a good friend of mine, Becky Papp in Phoenix, Arizona. She asked, what are your thoughts on setting quotas for board diversity, DDA? Yeah, this is an intriguing one eh? because uh, on one hand, quotas, are, if, if diversity is ideal, we shouldn't need quotas, right? Every board should want to be <laughs> ideal, right? And, uh, and on the other hand, it's not happening. And I find that uh, people are very reluctant. So, for example, uh, the quotas have been very successful in Norway. Uh, where they were first implemented, I believe, first or one of the first places. And, and now it's completely natural, right? And, uh, uh, I, I, and so I, while I would prefer not to have to use quotas, uh, unfortunately, it has been a good transition process. It should be a transition process, but it's been a, a good transition process and it's worked well uh, where they have been implemented. So when I see Becky's name come up on the screen, it, it uh, reminds me that she and I are member of, members of the conscious capitalism community here in the United States. Earlier in our conversation, DDA, you were talking about looking at stakeholders versus just shareholders. And I'm wondering, from your global perspective working with these boards, are you seeing the influence of the concepts behind either B corporations or conscious capitalism making their way into the boardrooms? So that's interesting and it links to Becky's question because when you look at the attitude of male board members versus female board members, it's quite different, actually. And the female board members are much more prone to a stakeholder capitalism type uh, of view. About 75% of women board members are, are in favor, while about 50% of male board members are in favor. And the differences are even stronger when you go in categories such as uh, uh, is environmental, our environmental issues of importance to the board. And then uh, it's almost double uh, in amongst uh, ladies and amongst men. It's about 65% amongst uh, women and 35% amongst men. And so, uh, or about human rights, for example. Uh, again, huge difference. So gender diversity is very linked to uh, how we see what I would call the stewardship of organizations and uh, how we think the long term and how we think value creation for the long term. And what I'm intrigued by is that uh, investors are much, and, uh, of, of any sex, are much closer to the view of female board members oh. than of male board members. So really? investors at large consider environmental issues, ESG, uh, prominent issues, and they consider social issues, prominent issues, and they consider gender diversity. By the way, gender diversity is used by 
many investors as one of the criteria of board quality. Uh, and so they, they definitely look at all these uh, issues. And somehow the traditional board members are not looking at them in the same way. And I think there is a disconnect there. And I'm afraid that the last word is going to come to the investors. I'm wondering, that is so fascinating. And thank you again, Becky, for starting us down this chain of conversation. That's part of the power of these LinkedIn live conversations with people like DDA, who have so much depth of knowledge in their area, writing books on the subject and sharing it. But I want to come back. Why? Did you have any sense for why? women female board members are more aware and sensitive to these other stakeholders than their male counterparts well first they're often less entrenched simply right mm -hmm. because uh, you know they're part of the renewal of the board uh and and by itself that's a good thing i do think that great boards have constant renewal i know a chair who's decided that there is one board member that will leave his board every year uh, so every year you have a board member that goes i think that's very healthy huh? and he's put in a bit of a meritocratic system and so and i was talking to the chair of a 250 billion dollars uh, market cap company and uh, he was telling me that he feels his number one job he wouldn't say that publicly but he told me that his number one job is to figure out the board members that contribute less and to displace him or her, you know, peacefully and discreetly. Uh, so I think there is that. Uh, first, the renewal side. But I think there is something else, uh, which is uh, we are moving to what I would call values-based governance. We were in a mechanical governance type of perspective, you know, size of board, number of independent directors, and the type, this type of issues, separation of CEO chair. And we're, we're moving to a values-based governance. Does the, the organization consider the long-term enough? Does the organization consider, you know, its impact and the negative impact it has? Does the uh, organization consider the potential backlash from victims uh, of its system. And all of these have financial consequences and, and, in, and are investment choices. And if you're thinking of the most powerful investors in the world, and I'm not talking about uh, the, the, the traders and the, the managers, right, that are transition people, but the, the most powerful ones are what? They're the sovereign wealth funds, and the large pension funds. And they're, they're the real owners on our behalf often, right, of uh, the fund. And these people have to have a long-term perspective. You know, I mean, you don't invest a pension for six months, right? <laughs> uh, and so you'd better think whether climate will have an effect in 25 years from now, right? It's very hard. And I think today it's very hard to be in denial that in 25 years from now, climate will not have an effect. And, and by the way, uh, oil and gas companies that have made the shift have uh, tripled their market caps, while the others had uh, uh, divided their market cap by a factor of two. Uh, so I think the, the game is very clear for investors. Well, this has been so fascinating. I was excited to have the opportunity to share this 
time with you. I am, I am more impressed now than when I had your book with you and, and all that you know. If someone, you know, we're putting on the crawl, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, connect with you on LinkedIn, is there another way that you would offer to people that are listening to this that want to connect with you to uh, reach out and connect? So LinkedIn is very easy. Uh, this is the social media I use the most. Uh, but otherwise, I'm very easy to find also on uh, Google. Uh, my, my book is easy to find uh, on Amazon.com or uh, other booksellers if you have a preference for another online bookseller. Uh, and uh, I myself can be found also on the site of imd.org. But Google, you know, finds me or the search engines just on my name. Well, DDA Kosan, I have thoroughly enjoyed and learned from this time that we've spent together. As I, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm a part of a global organization, Renaissance Executive Forums, and we have over 2,000 CEOs and members who come to our groups. Uh, many of them do not have boards because they're privately held, and so they're looking for each other to be peer advisors and help them. And if any of you are interested in learning more about Renaissance Executive Forums, I encourage you to visit our website, executiveforums.com. I'd like to welcome you into our global community as a thought leader and hope that the relationship between you and the work that you're doing can benefit the greater Renaissance Executive Forums community as well, DDA. All right. Thank you, Rick. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And I just hope that everyone who's listening to this live or participates later on YouTube or finds the video on LinkedIn, I hope today and in the future you could make a positive impact. Thank you for participating in today's interview.